0: Americans react to homeless with a mix of anger, compassion, perplexity, and frustration. Little progress seems to be made. These are the thoughts of Stephen Ide from his book Homelessness in America, just published. Mr. Ide is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, who has a PhD in political philosophy from Boston College. He focuses a good deal of the 151-page book on the housing issue. In chapter 11, he suggests when housing is all that anyone debates, nothing winds up getting done about public disorder, drug addiction, and untreated mental illness. Steve and I, when I come to work every day on Capitol Hill, I drive by something called the Mitch Snyder Shelter. What role did he play in the whole business of homelessness?
1: Well, Mitch Snyder was probably the most um, important, famous, and also effective homeless advocate in American history. Nowadays, we have these groups that we call advocates who play a really important role in addition to you know politicians, um, service providers, and driving the homelessness debate. And he was one of the first, but also just really a legendary figure because he made this issue... Which I think had previously been seen as more of a local issue, one of national, nas- national importance, that is to say, a responsibility of the federal government. Um, he was act- put on all kinds of stunts um, in the 1980s and really sort of harassed the Reagan administration into making a federal investment in homeless services that had never been never happened before. And I think, as a result of that, really made it ch- change the issue in a number of important ways as well.
0: You mentioned in there that uh, at one point he had Senator Ted Kennedy have a some kind of a luncheon on Capitol Hill where they brought food in from the dumpsters or the thro- the uh, food that's thrown away. Yes, it was something they called the
1: beggars' banquet. There was at, at a certain point of debate about how um, much food was being disposed of by, like, restaurants and grocery stores, and might there not be some way to repurpose that to feed homeless people? And he put on, yeah, hosted a, a luncheon, I think it was, with yeah, very high-ranking politicians, um, and all the food was comprised of stuff they had essentially found from dumpsters.
0: Well, this was a long time ago, and what was the positive or possible negative effect that Mitch Snyder had? Because he was so public and they made movies out of television shows and martin sheen uh, spent the night somewhere in a homeless area
1: well i would think i would say as connected to the argument in my book that the on on net the influence was negative because of the way that it changed the debate i mean to me homelessness there's just something really artificial about this this problem this idea it's this umbrella term That we group under all kinds, we put all kinds of other problems underneath it: addiction, unstable families. And um, after Snyder's campaigns, there was no turning back. We, like one thing that we did, as I alluded to, we set up independent homeless services systems. So we'd had, you know, before, you know, problems to help. Um, disadvantaged populations. Um, the welfare state was well-established by that point, but in addition to do, so having mental health agencies, workforce development agencies, we, need, we also need to have independent homelessness agencies and homelessness programs. And that, I think, muddled things in an um, unhelpful way, and the consequences of that we're still living with.
0: How many people in the United States today are homeless? Uh According to the official count that HUD,
1: the U- United States Department of Housing and Urban Development maintains about somewhere between probably five hundred and fifty and six hundred thousand at any given time.
0: Where are they in the states?
1: Um, well, the largest concentration of what we call unsheltered homeless people, meaning people who literally sleep outside and not in a temporary housing shelter, um, are in California. That's, that's by far the largest population. Um, so, you know, the impression that people get from social media, from the news is not inaccurate. It's backed up by the data that ha- California really is ground zero in terms of the unsheltered homeless crisis in America
0: first time in your life you ever cared about this issue?
1: Well, I became seriously... Um, interested in homelessness. And during the 2010s, when it was really erupting in New York City, I mean, New York City has always struggled with homelessness going back to the emergence of the modern crisis in the early 1980s, but the de Blasio administration was came in with big plans. Those plans did not come to fruition, and it became elevated as one of the leading topics of the debate. And my think tank, where I worked, Manhattan Institute, really needed someone to focus more intensely on this so that's what i that's how i started really paying closer
0: attention how did you go about learning about this issue
1: well what i tried to do, i mean i've done things that other people have done i've looked at the data i've read the academic literature i have talked with um, homeless people themselves people in the streets in you know california and i have visited shelters i've interviewed many service providers over the years but for my book, I really tried to spend a lot of time um, looking at the history of homelessness because I felt like that was a really good way to just kind of bring into perspective what is it that we're up against? What is, what is this problem? Why is it worse in some um, times and others? But also, why, is it, why does it have the particular character that it has now? Um, so that was what I, um, for the book in particular, the history is what I spent a lot of time
0: with. Up until June 1st, 2022, this year, if you came to Washington on a train and walked outside of Union Station, there were 20 to 30 tents outside, right around the Columbus statue. And then on the 1st of June, the District of Columbia told them they had to leave and they moved all the tents and people left that area. Why did they leave them there for so long? And then when they moved them, what's the impact usually on these kind of situations?
1: Well, some of that may have been um, just a legacy of, partly during COVID, there was um, normal protocols of dismantling encampments, addressing tent cities, um, were shut down, suspended because of a CDC um, directive that it would spread COVID. Many cities left them pl- those in place for a while, even after we've been sort of pulling out of COVID. But also another reason why cities are slow to move on encampments is because that is a process that's very tightly regulated by all kinds of um, court rulings, uh, as well as government policies. It's, it's become very expensive. You have to do it in a certain way. So, so they, they tend to develop and not get addressed as promptly as they probably should be. Um, but I've seen, I was in D.C. a couple of weeks ago, and I saw other smaller encampments, like in sort of like small parks, small public places, like collection of like four or five tents. D.C. doesn't have anything like California, where you'll you know, come across like 50 to 60 people encampments, which is like a qualitatively different problem in addition to a quantitatively different one. Um, but it's worse than New York, I would say. I would say D.C. is worse than New York in terms of the encampment problem.
0: Well, if you drive to Capitol Hill and you go to the Senate, once you turn off, there's a big encampment right there uh, in the tunnel. And if you come to the Heritage Foundation uh, about, a, don't know, six months to a year ago, there was a huge 15 to 20 tents out in front of that operation, which is a block from the Senate office buildings. And Then if you go down on the mall, you find the individuals on the benches and they're there early in the morning. What's the difference between a a tent encampment and the individual? And they're all over the city of Washington where the individual is somewhere on a bench or hiding behind a monument somewhere.
1: Well, I think in the case of a tent, you have these, excuse me, in a cam, and you have these like communities forming. And with when when the communities form, they tend to attract the attention of uh, drug dealers, for example. It's known that that's a good place to go to market your wares. Um, anybody who's who sort of like has a kind of a lifestyle attracted to homelessness, which is not everybody, but it, which is some, they start hearing about one of these places, particularly in California, it's like, maybe that's something that I'd like to try it for a little while. Um... And also, you know, there's just – the encampments have a lot – these are very troubled populations. I mean, you can't form a healthy community out of a population with almost everybody has some sort of behavioral health disorder. There are very serious crime problems in them. And so when you keep the lid on things, even if you have a scattering of people – um, those worst problems don't don't develop um, as much. And also, if you're talking about an individual person, that may be someone who sleeps, who has slept in a shelter the night before. You, often shelters um, have rules saying you can't hang around during the day. So if somebody is sheltered, even though they still probably have lots of problems in their life, they still need a lot of a lot of help, that signifies at least one thing about that person, that they are willing to accept the services government is offering to them, which is an important distinction because many people on the street have decided they're not going to accept any of the services that government has spent. So much money setting up and making available to them.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why do you say in your book that poor people hate dealing with bureaucracies?
1: Well, you know, we set up these government systems, these programs, in order to often to guide against corruption or to, to, to make them operate in a fair way. They have to be, you know, they have to uh, operate slowly. We have to check people's history to make sure they qualify. They t- check the boxes for a particular. Um, benefit or service. And that's really frustrating for somebody who's needy and who just wants something and who doesn't understand why all these rules have to be in place. If we didn't have these rules in place, there would be certainly more fraud. And I think the public reaction would be harmful um, if, if your bottom line is expanding services and benefits but um, they, um, the result is real bu- bureaucracy, and so the way that poor people who have to wait in line to receive benefits, housing, cash assistance, whatever, you often hear the same kind of frustration with regulations that you hear about, you know, I don't know, chamber of commerce type groups. It's a striking similarity. Where did you grow up? Richmond, Virginia.
0: Did you see homeless as you were growing up?
1: Um, I did not. Um, except for well, I grew up in a sort of inner-ring suburb of, of Virginia. I should qualify Chesterfield County, um, but certainly when I would go downtown, I would see, I, I would notice it.
0: Was it ever a concern of yours when you were that age?
1: I wouldn't say so, no. And I, and, and you know, for, for through the church, I you know in, volunteered in a modest way. It was you know there's service um, programs that you participate in, but it was not a. Um, didn't loom as large in my life. I didn't
0: know. As I was reading your book, I found a documentary on YouTube called Under the Bridge. I don't know if you've seen it. It's about Indianapolis.
1: Okay. And, no, I haven't
0: seen that one, no. And one of the main points of this, and, uh, and I don't want to try to overly characterize it, but that in Indianapolis, most of the shelters are religious-based. And there's one that they featured in this documentary, uh, Wheeler Missions and all that. Uh, Is there a difference on how the religious groups treat homelessness and the government groups?
1: So you have in very big... Governments that have the highest-profile problems, like in California and New York, religious groups play a very supporting role, whereas the government-funded groups have, have the lead. The religious groups are just an afterthought. In other places, like Indianapolis, the religious groups, the faith-based organizations, have the lead. They've probably been at this work for a very long time. Um, there's a good chance they get you know no government money at all. You know, they're... You're going to find more emphasis on changing behavior, I think in religious groups than in the government systems. There are exceptions to that. there are religious groups who operate you know so-called wet shelters and government groups that really try to you know enforce behavior requirements, sobriety participation services work. But generally speaking, I think more interested in changing lives than just connecting people with services in the faith-based organizations than in the um, government groups. I would say that in defense of the government systems, you know, that we ha- you have very, very troubled cases in the homeless populations, people with untreated schizophrenia, people with violent tendencies. That is going to have to be the government's responsibility. We're not going to be able to rely on faith-based groups to deal with those hardest, most disturbing cases.
0: One of the objections from the people in the documentary was that if you went to a shelter like the Wheeler uh, Mission, that uh, they had a requirement that you spend so much time while you were there on religion. Uh, have you run into that kind of a situation in your research?
1: People mentioned that. I think that there's often more leniency in these organizations than they get credit for. It's not like you 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 fail the breathalyzer once and that's that's the end of this, we're not helping you anymore. Or if you're, you know, and oftentimes the requirements that you attend service are, are pretty light. Um and and also also they sometimes have a somewhat more indirect um, intention, um, in the sense that they're trying to create communities. They're trying to unite everyone around this goal of, you know, getting your lives back together. And getting everyone to participate in religious services is uh, is one way to do that. And the, as part of the direct mission of saving souls, you know, I would say in defense of that, people need something to recover for. Um, people whose lives, who've made, a mis- made many mistakes in their lives, their lives are very troubled. What is the... Th- thing that they, that's driving them, that they need to do everything, that they need to reorder everything else that they need to get sober for, get working for, is it reconnecting with their family? Maybe a life of faith can provide that overarching sense of purpose for some people, and so that's an advantage that, that those groups have.
0: If for what some reason or another you found yourself homeless, <clears throat> obviously uh, I'm sure you don't expect to, but all of a sudden one day every, the bottom falls out, where would you go? What would be your first choice? Well, the first choice would
1: be friends and family. Um, And that's, you know, I think in some ways, placeless might be a better definition than homeless, because you're talking about people who are not just poor. They don't have the type of social connections. They don't have any defined social place in any family or community. And that's really what sets them apart, maybe even more than their poverty.
0: If there was no family, for whatever reason, what would be your second choice?
1: Um, I would have to turn to a temporary housing program, meaning a shelter, and um, that would be a place where I could at least sleep. I could be assured that I would have my sleep nighttime needs met. They would probably help me with a little bit of food and maybe have some idea of how to connect me with other services, other systems that would help me get back on my feet.
0: All right. I don't want to keep doing this to you, but if the third choice, or maybe a better way to ask the question, if uh, the first two weren't available, what would you avoid doing?
1: Um, well, I would. I, w- I would like most people. I-, I would avoid sleeping in a public place. Um, and if, if you're sleeping in a public place, so shelters have a bad reputation among the homeless population, and they're they're often said to be unsafe. But it's clear from the academic literature, and I think also common sense, you're going to be safer in a shelter than the streets. So, as uncomfortable as it may be to sleep in dorm-style living, you're probably you're going to be a little bit safer. Your stuff will be more protected. You are really vulnerable um, in multiple ways if you're on the streets versus in a shelter, even if you have to make, if, even if it's not your
0: ideal. In your book, you have these statistics. We talked a little bit about this earlier. Single male adult homeless, 285,000. Single adult females, 120,000. And 54,000 families in America that are homeless. Why more males than anything else?
1: I think a lot of it comes down to this fairly traditional idea that families... um, In order for a family to kick out... Uh, an adult female, she has to be really troubled. They put up with, they're, they're more tolerant of their adult females than they are their adult males. Um, an adult male, if even just unemployment or, you know, what I call shiftlessness, that may be an excuse to kick them out from the family unit. You're going to see that happening more with adult males than adult females, and I think that's always been the case in American history.
0: When families are without a place, uh, where do they end up usually?
1: Families are uh, almost always in shelters. We have. There's a very small number of families who actually sleep in a tent or on the streets. Um, and so, so in New York City, which is the family homelessness capital of America, they're essentially all in a shelter, a
0: temporary housing facility. Go back to Mayor de Blasio. He's no longer mayor. But if I lived uh, in New York City and you talk a little bit about the COVID uh, difficulties of sheltering people in some hotels up in the Upper West Side, uh, where would I go in New York City and how would I be treated?
1: Well, New York City is somewhat unusual. It has something called a right to shelter law. So everybody, You just showed up yesterday and you don't have a place to sleep. The city is obligated to put you up. They will put you up in a shelter, and they have hundreds of shelter programs all over that have different emphasis. They try to connect people with, like, mental health needs, with a mental health shelter, etc. But the first thing is, for that night, they will put you up somewhere. The city will find you a place to sleep.
0: Charge you anything?
1: No. Shelter is free.
0: What about food?
1: That will be provided as well.
0: How long will you get a shelter? New York does not have um,
1: real time limits on the shelter, but there will be like indirect pressure applied to move you along to some other situation.
0: Is there a difference between the way New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Detroit treat the homeless than they do in Alabama, Florida, Texas, the southern part of the country?
1: Well, you just, it's, it's just first of all it's just a much bigger well two things it's a much bigger problem and then you have this you know blue political culture which is means both wealth and the great willingness to tax that wealth and spend big so alabama mississippi they're Those are very poor places. There's a lot of poverty there, um, but very little homelessness. That's obvious from if you ever visited them and also um, if you uh, just look also from the statistics. So they do less for the homeless, but they also have smaller, much
0: smaller problems. Why do you think that is?
1: I think in a lot of cases, it does have to do with housing. When we're talking about the housing aspect of the homelessness problem, it's the number of low rent and also low quality apartments within reach of somebody with really low income. There were other times in American history where it was just as easy to find a place to stay for the night as it was food or um, clothing. Nowadays, It's homeless people, even the most destitute among them in San Francisco or whatever, they can find food, they can find health care, they can find like socks. They can't find housing as easily as they once did. But in those other places, those red state rural areas, it's a little bit easier to find just at least something.
0: Why do you think Los Angeles and I've heard different numbers, 60,000 people on the streets, homeless? uh, Maybe you have a different number. Why do you think they have so many there?
1: Uh, well, you do have the, um, um, uh, the the housing problem, but you also have in, Californ- in California, Los Angeles, San Francisco, particularly uh, as the problem has, has sort of morphed over the last 20, 30 years, this um, reluctance to use the criminal justice system for social problems, um, the reluctance to act more prompt, which has led to a, more of a reluctance to act more promptly towards encampments. And so you have this, what an economist might call this kind of agglomeration dynamic, whereby, you know, you, you a it becomes like 30, 40 people. It's going to grow more quickly to 60 people than it did from, let's say, like one to 30. It's easier to be the 2001st homeless person in a community than the first one. It just becomes easier people. It, it attracts notice, brings more people in, um, and that's that kind of more, Casual or just reluctant attitude towards public disorder in Los Angeles, I do think has allowed the problem to build.
0: You refer to something called the social services industrial complex. What's that? Well, that's a
1: term that it's people in the 1960s, when government was making a big effort to fight poverty, to hand out lots of contracts to nonprofit groups, people began to suspect that some of these groups were not. Res- What they were really doing with that money is just providing jobs to their friends, developing these little kind of political machines, more than they were determined to fix the problem that they were trying to – they were supposedly hired to do. That is, uh, people in the social services world have a conflict of interest. I think that – a lot of that rhetoric is fairly exaggerated. It's not as if the, these people who are running these problems know how to fix these problems, but they're not, just not doing it because they want to keep a good thing going. I mean, that seems inaccurate to me. But there is a sense in which this, it's difficult to turn the boat around when it becomes very, very big and when people's livelihoods are dependent on that, and it would be silly to define that, to, to, to deny that. It is a
0: problem. How does the United States compare with other countries?
1: Well, I don't know. I, I don't know as much about the European situation as as I should. Um, anyone who visits these places, you, you know, other other like European cities, will say if they compare it to like L.A. and San Francisco, they will say it's just you know there's nothing like that. One thing that seems to me interesting about the European situation is that it has more of a direct tie in with immigrant groups. Then in America, in America going way back, there's never, you know, immigrants are very poor and they have lots of, you know, disadvantages. But um, they've never really contributed heavily to the homeless problem, the public disorder problem, whereas in Europe you hear and see more of that.
0: One of the things, this is just a side note that you have in the book. You say it's quite possibly that YouTube and iPhones have contributed to homelessness.
1: Well, if you read journalistic accounts of the life of homeless people, whether it's somebody on the streets or somebody who's living in a shelter. I mean, there's the account, there's the, there's, you know, what, what's their background? Um, what kind of problems do they have? But what do they do during the day? Um, watching free consuming free entertainment is, um, it seems to be what they do hours on end. And it, um, uh you know, homeless people, my impression, like back in like the 1930s, used to be bigger readers. They used, they've, all, they've always been attracted to libraries, not as much as now, um, but more so. But they were – they seem to spend more time like reading books and newspapers. You don't see that as much. You see – but just – they, they all seem to have iPhones and to spend endless hours watching, you know, free entertainment.
0: There's a paragraph on page 67 I want to read and get your reaction that you wrote. <clears throat> you say even assuming that policy making should be rooted in our hearts, compassion is not the only emotional response to homelessness. There is also anger. When a commuter passes the same man living in a in squalor every day, to and from work. That person might well feel angry at the government that allows that to happen as much as they do compassion toward the homeless man in question. Arguing over what's the angriest solution to homelessness is no more likely to resolve policy disputes than arguing over what's the most compassionate solution. Uh, Can you give us some more about why you wrote that paragraph?
1: Well, that's for my chapter about compassion, in which I'm trying to speak to people's feelings that... I think some people feel intimidated when others accuse them of not being compassionate enough towards homelessness, or that the spectacle of homelessness represents America's lack of compassion. But I think if we think through what our experience of encountering homelessness is, it's not just feelings of compassion, it's also other feelings, um, and such as anger, and... Um, It's not clear that focusing on those feelings, on those passions, it's really going to lead to a more productive direction than the one we're on right now. And as far as the reaction of the subway commuter to um, experiencing the same, you know, person every every day i think it contributes a lot to the sense that of just government dysfunction we you know we we the, the government just does, doesn't work very well we have these disgraceful problems they, they seem to persist we spend more money on them they still persist why does it have to be like that and i think that that's something that you find just as much amongst um people with progressive blue sympathies as in um as is the case with as is, as conservatism
0: Go back to, uh, I mentioned uh, the Upper West Side of New York. Um, during COVID, you point out that uh, the Lucerne Hotel and the Belclair Hotel were used for people that needed a place to stay, and it caused difficulty in the community around. Can you explain what that difficulty was?
1: Well, it's difficult. Social integration is a main goal of homelessness policy yes we want to get these people set up with all the benefits that they qualify for but we also want to reintegrate them into normal american communities we don't want them to live to live a life apart and so when you so one material form that that takes is where do you put facilities for homeless people these people don't have any to have a place to sleep we want to give them a place to sleep where do we put that place well let's put it in a real neighborhood um but in practice um that has a kind of like Potemkin social integration look, just putting these facilities next to each other. It's just very difficult to form a real community in a meaningful way out of two groups of people, one of whom, you know, goes to work every day, uh, you know, keeps normal like nighttime hours. And the other group who doesn't have anything to do during the day has very high rates of addiction, uh, untreated mental illness, Um, Keeps odd hours at night because they have nothing to do during the day. Um, And so, you know, what are what do we. So where I where I go with that with that is integration is a valid goal. But we needed to talk more about than just talk more about just housing if we want to achieve integration.
0: You're a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. What is the Manhattan Institute?
1: The Manhattan Institute is a New York City-based think tank focused on domestic policy. With, and we, we're particularly known as a center-right, but having a um,
0: strong interest in urban problems. How long has it been around, and where did it come from?
1: It's been around for about uh, 40 years. Um, it had it took on a, in its early stages. It was more sort of economic policy focused It took on its more recognizable form i think in the early 90s um and uh when giuliani was getting going
0: how many people are there
1: uh don't have the re- recent t- tally but i would estimate around 70 where we would be considered like a mid-sized think tank we're not as large as the um, most famous ones like aei brookings heritage um but larger than many of the um state regional based think tanks
0: you got a PhD from Boston College in political philosophy. Uh, why did you choose to do this kind of work?
1: Well, I was—I um, I wanted some, make some extra money while I was in dissertation phase. It's very difficult to academic to get an academic job, um, and so I uh, started doing policy work. And I found that I just—it uh, was really stimulating and really just as intellectually rewarding as my philosophy studies had been.
0: What uh, was your dissertation about?
1: My dissertation was about John Locke and Alexis de Tocqueville, and this discussion of restlessness, why people in liberal democratic societies seem to be so restless. Even when things get better, people are still often so unhappy.
0: (laughs) Why did you pick John Locke and Alexis de Tocqueville?
1: Well, Locke's just, you know, maybe the most famous liberal political philosopher, maybe the most famous important political philosopher for the American founding. So he's the kind of architect of this system of liberal democracy. And Tocqueville comes along after American democracy has got going and is able to kind of see what the results have been and, and explain what, you know, how things look relative to the, the initial expectations.
0: As you know, Tocqueville wrote a lot about this country when he came here in the early 1800s. How much of that has turned out to be true?
1: I think the the, the fundamental – what he's really good with and what we will always come back to with him is just the overwhelming power of this idea of equality, that that is what defines the modern age, this – unique power of equality. You know, he was from an aristocratic background, so he understood better than people who have no idea of what that Ancien Regime looked like, that that is just unique and all-encompassing. And, um, you know, it's something that you know, we always think that there's all, people are always identifying new inequalities that have to be rectified. Um, that's what so many of our debates continue to be about, and that was something that Tocqueville... Forced us to look at back in the 1830s.
0: You got your undergraduate degree, if I read right, from St. John's in Santa Fe, and I believe that's associated with St. John's in Annapolis, uh, if I'm right about that. Why'd yes. you pick it? And what kind of an education was that before you got to your PhD?
1: St. John's is a great book school, so you uh, just spend four years reading the great works of um, philosophy, literature also uh math and science you start out with you know you learn geometry by reading euclid not using a textbook um and uh it, it attracted i don't know i guess my parents took a um a particularly um important role in directing me to saint john's um and it was a really transformative um experience um and i'll always be great eternally grateful for- <laughs> them that they that they did that
0: what what changed uh, about you when you went through that particular school well I just
1: wasn't from a place that was very intellectually serious where people were interested in you know high culture and just within weeks of being immersed in this new environment where that's all anybody was interested in. That was uh, revolutionary. I mean, St. John's was a school where, you know, if you wanted to be cool, if you wanted to socially fit in, you you had to at least pretend like you cared about Plato. And that was a very different value system than the one I
0: experienced in high school. With all that reading that you did at St. John's and and beyond, did you ever read about earlier times in our our world that uh, there was poverty, there was... Homelessness, and how did they deal with it if you did read about
1: it? Well, it wasn't a... I mean, it it manifests itself in different ways. You know, madness is something that certainly Plato and the Greek tragedians talk about. Um, Certainly um, exile, the the theme of an exile, um, is something that comes up a lot in ancient Greek literature um but it's um i mean in my book i really had to make a decision about when when to begin the history of homelessness and i decided let's just start with the post-civil war era because if i start talking about you know the the tragedy of ajax or uh you know captain nemo um things are just gonna I'll, i'll never escape from that rabbit hole
0: What's happened in this country over the years to homelessness, the issue, and who's on what kind of a side when it comes to dealing with this problem?
1: Well, the the programs themselves, there's not a lot of debate within the systems, within the community of people who are paid to work on homelessness – Um, at the federal government level or in in communities, they're generally on board with this philosophy known as housing first that emphasizes just redistribution of housing benefits to anybody who doesn't have them, permanent housing benefits, and a sort of vague promise that we'll work on the other stuff later. Um, There's a lot of frustration over that approach because it made grand claims for itself that it was going to end homelessness um, during the 2000s, 2010s, so, we invest a lot of it. it didn't even really reduce homelessness that much in these um, high profile locations such as California and so now there's kind of a pull a little bit back to this discussion of, hey, wait a minute, people have lots of problems. L- lack of access to permanent housing is only one of them let's give another look at what ha- what we might do to address those other problems sobriety, unemployment, mental illness because if the idea is that we 're not going to get to that stuff until everybody has housing then we- You know, we'll never get around to getting to that stuff.
0: Well, How has the culture changed uh, in the discussion and the words that people use to describe people that are are homeless? And I'm getting at when they were called tramps or bums, uh, uh, and then there was skid row, and you go through all this in your book. How has that changed over the years?
1: Well, the thing thing that struck me about reading about the 19th century, uh, late 19th, early 20th century, and works by people like Jack London— was that these? Um, there was just a greater variety of terms. A and hobo, tramp, bum. That's an interesting case. You know, we don't call people that anymore. But to the extent we use those terms at all, we assume they refer to the same thing, and that's not actually not true at all. The hobo was the group of guys who who moved around the country and worked. The tramp uh, moved around but didn't work. He got by on his wits. And then the bum cohort didn't work and didn't move. They were sort of disabled, retired, former hobos and tramps. And they were part of a very distinct kind of social order. And the hobos and tramps in particular had a sense of pride um, in their status. And then, the, But perhaps the most noticeable difference between those terms and the way we talk about homelessness now is that none of this had anything to do with people's housing status. Um, they were defined more other features were considered to be much more defining salient, salient than where they slept at night.
0: One of the biggest words in your book is, and I'm going to try to pronounce it, deinstitutionalization. What is it?
1: Well, in the middle of the um, 20th century, state governments had this situation where they were operating these enormous mental asylums. They called them mental hospitals by that point but they originally called asylums set up in the with the best of intentions in the 19th century they had swelled to a magnitude beyond anyone's initial um, expectations and nobody wanted anything to do with these systems i mean they were no one seemed they didn't seem to be making people better they were just sort of like looking after people until they died some people lived in all the old state hospitals for just decades um and so they were also very expensive and so is this like, well maybe you know this was post-moral america i mean hopes were brimming high about on a number of fronts and surely we can do better on the mental health care front than this truly embarrassing disgraceful asylum system so we decided to change all that and, and invest instead in this community-based system of mental health care services so the institutionalized population the population um held in state and public mental hospitals, declined by over 90% between then and now. Um, and some people managed to live better lives than they would have if they had just been confined to a mental hospital throughout all their adult years. Um, but many, for many people, it didn't wor- the promise didn't work out as well, the promise of not just different care but better care, and those people wound up on the streets in many cases.
0: I've heard too many people say when they see a tent city around Washington that all those people in those tents are mentally ill. True or false?
1: I think it, I, I try to distinguish between people with just some sort of mental health disorder in general, which could mean all kinds of things. You know, we're, we're discovering new mental disorders all the time and applying old categories to new people all the time and what we call serious mental illness meaning especially schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. M- most homeless people, or certainly all homeless people are not seriously mentally ill. They could still be troubled. They could still have a very bad addiction disorder, but they're certainly not all seriously
0: mentally ill. That's fair. How many on a percentage basis of the 500,000 homeless in the United States are mentally ill? Probably, well, seriously, mentally, it's somewhere between 100 and 150 thousand,
1: something like around 120 thousand, if I um, remember correctly.
0: You say that President Reagan should not be blamed for shutting down these mental institutions. They were state
1: programs. It was this mental health was one of those areas that was always considered a state government responsibility. So they, the states were the ones who built the asylums in the 19th century, and, op- and to this day, that's that's who operates them. Um, and so, um, you know, Reagan was the president, and Reagan certainly had a role in California's particular deinstitutionalization, as that was implemented in the late 60s, early 70s. But I think what people, what happened was people just had, homelessness kind of burst on the scene in the early 1980s, and Reagan had just been inaugurated, and so that correlation that coincidence was just so powerful to so many people that you know to the state over 40 years later many people just say well that's that's what i observed he, that guy became president and all of a sudden we saw these people popping up in train station and parks in a way that had never happened before so he must be he surely it was he's the one who did it
0: why did all the states do it at about the same time uh deinstitutionalization yeah well, there, Well, first of all, the mental health community
1: lost confidence in the mission of the mental hospitals. Even psychiatrists themselves used them as embarrassing. This is when, you know, Freudianism was getting going. People want to work with, like, you know, kind of worried well types. Um, but also um, there was – the federal government does get involved in the 60s with um, Medicaid in particular – and the federal government says, um, okay, you, you state governments, we're going to set up this, this cost-sharing, this subsidized health insurance pro, program, Medicaid, we're going to share some of the costs, you're going to share some of the costs, but here's the deal. We know you still have this very large institutionalized population. So, you know, we're not about to be put on the hook for you, you know, warehousing people for decades. Um, so if you want to do that, you can do that on your own dime. We'll pay for community-based care. Okay, so the states followed the money and said, okay, if we can bill the federal government for half of this, then we're going to put people in community-based care um, because that just financially makes more sense to us. Whether that was clinically appropriate for the population in question um, is another question.
0: You also talk about the money that's devoted to... uh mental health services. And you suggest that it's come a long, long way up to the estimate you use in your book of 2013 in the Obama years that they spent as much as $150 billion on this. And uh, what's going on there? And do you have any figures for the last 10 years? Um, I don't have
1: a current figure, but certainly, yeah, it would be in the hundreds of billions. Medicaid is the largest um, funder of mental health services in America, this government program. Um, I think that, you know, what the big problem we have is what does it mean to invest in mental health care? Who has a mental disorder? I mean, there's a difference between somebody who's poor and who has some sort of mental disorder, you know, mild anxiety, mild depression, a kid with some sort of what we call a trauma problem, um, and schizophrenia. And The schizophrenic cases are more difficult. They involve uh, one big difference between that population and the more kind of mainstream mental health service-consuming population is they don't want treatment. They, They, in many cases, don't believe that they're sick. They're so sick that they don't know that they're sick. They don't accept that. And they don't want assistance. And so you can say, well, we need to just provide, offer services in a different way. But, you know, they're just they don't like they refuse to take medication um, for various reasons um... they they object to the the you know the the social services staff who approach them so there's a just a a tendency to just kind of move away from those very trouble cases and invest in other forms of mental disorders and that's why the 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 sums swell to such large heights um, but the hardest cases never really get improved.
0: In the time that you've studied this, um, where do you come down? and uh, Not necessarily you come down, but where does the different states and the federal government come down when it comes to rights? The rights of the individual who is homeless and the rights of the state to move them from wherever they are located in a public park.
1: As a result of court rulings, I think there's a general... Generally, the law. Well, there's the law, and then there's the willingness to use the law, and that may be one of the largest differences that we, that's behind what we see. Um, I mean, w- one way to, one way to think about this is, in Cal, in in California, in um, I think it was 2018, there was an important federal court ruling that said that a state cannot enforce. Excuse me, a city cannot enforce regulations on sleeping in public places unless it offers people on an alternative. So if you invest in shelter and you offer that first to people and they don't take it, then you can move on an encampment. But if you haven't done that yet, then you can't b- prohibit sleeping in public. Um, and so that has stimulated a lot of investment in housing programs in California. But the question then becomes, if you s- s- already spent a-, a lot of money and so following the guidelines of the court, um, are you also then taking advantage of that new um, authority to act to dismantle encampments in response to demands made by the public that they don't want their public places to be destroyed? Um, and I think there's still, and this kind of relates to tr- trends in thinking in criminal justice and the role of the police, there's still a reluctance even when cities have invested big an alternative to sleeping in the street to um, enforce provisions against uh, uh, sleeping in the streets.
0: When you're talking about the history of this issue, you bring up the Moynihan report. Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to be a senator in uh, New York. He was uh, at one point U.N. ambassador. I think he was the ambassador to India. Uh, But he had twice, in the Lyndon Johnson administration and in the Nixon administration, written things that um, made a big impact back then. Fill the blanks uh, on that story.
1: Well, the, the particular connect... Well, one of the main connections is the just with the issue of family instability. He is now regarded as a real, you know, profit in terms of the rise and normalization by this point of the single parent family. Um, And that certainly explains, in my view, a lot of the family homelessness problem. We never had homeless families in America before 1980 or so. And, you know, when people say that, you know, family homelessness, well, that you know, it's, when people who are really attached to this idea that homelessness is a housing problem, full stop, they don't like to hear it when you bring up something like single-parent families. And they might say, for example, that, well, Detroit or, you know, Mississippi, they have problems with single-parent families there, but there's not a lot of homelessness. That's true, but those are places that would not have, to the extent those places do have family homelessness problems, they wouldn't have had them, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Um, and that has a lot to do with um, the rise of the
0: single-parent family. Why did the number of women in this country having children out of wedlock uh, greatly increase over the last 50 years, up to the point where I think uh, in the black families it's 72% and uh, uh, the national average is like 40-42% of women that have children uh, alone, single, not married?
1: Well, it's... It's hard, in my mind, to explain in a convincing way that doesn't make it sound just tautological. That is, that is, you're just sort of restating the problem. That's, You know, if I were to say, well, the reason why that happened was because it became more normalized, became more socially acceptable to live um, with a couple children in your house but no man around, that doesn't... to many people's eyes, that doesn't sound like that much of an explanation, but to me, that just gets at more of what we're really talking about. It used to be a source of shame, and it ceased to be a source of shame. And, you know, that horse left the barn door just decades ago by this point in terms of um, uh, social norms. And during the welfare reform debate of the 1990s, there was a a lot of scrutiny applied to the program, to the problem, and the role that government programs may have played in that, and certainly to the extent that these, you know, cash assistance programs that were originally set up for widowed mothers or um, were then um, expanded to um, <clears throat> to be used mainly by women who had never been married, um, that was an unintended consequence of the New Deal, for sure. And people hope that somehow by tinkering with that, we might be able to do something about um, family structure. I think looking back on welfare reform, it probably, welfare reform did help in terms of workforce participation, in terms of encouraging more people into the workforce, and that was one of the goals. It doesn't didn't seem to have helped that much with the chronic single-parent family problem.
0: Can you explain why... Um you think the future will have fewer college students and what impact that'll have uh, on homelessness. You mentioned that uh, near the end of your book.
1: Well, I try to in my, so when I think about homelessness and try to define, as I said earlier, you know, what we're up against, the nature of the problem, they're the kind of principal causes and treated mental illness and stable families. And then they're kind of the associated Problems or associated um, issues. Um, Immigration and gentrification is one of the... So in New York City, there was a lot of gentrification in the early 2000s, where you had young, college-aged people who, at that particular point in their lives, didn't necessarily have a ton of money, but had strong prospects for future earning, moving into neighborhoods that had been given up for dead like 20, 30 years ago, that had been high crime places. And this was just such a noticeable thing that happened in New York City especially that people started naturally started to wonder what sort of larger economic – knock on effects it had i think that although the fact that wanting to, having young people moving into formerly bad neighborhoods is surely a definition of urban health i mean it's it's a you know a first world problem a problem that many cities would like to have there probably is some sense in which it Placed pressure on already strained housing markets and made it and contributed some to at least housing instability in New York City. But now we face a situation of demographic decline, and in the higher education field, many colleges are quaking in their boots at the moment as to whether or not they'll be in business in 10 years because families are so smaller, there's so many fewer graduating high school seniors in the pipeline. It hasn't yet had an impact on the urban debate, urban policy debate. But I think it will, because if that's something that colleges see coming at them, then cities who had banked their whole economic development strategies around more young people wanting to come and live with them, live in them, um, they're going to have to rethink that. In some cases, it may ease some of the pressure, though, on that low-rent housing market.
0: If you consider yourself a so-called progressive or a so-called conservative, I'm I don't know what I'm really it's hard to define any of that today but if you're on those kind of different sides what would your attitude be about homelessness uh and maybe not the overall homelessness but the specific ways to treat it well, one
1: way to think about it would be the distinction between redistribution and rehabilitation. I think progressives are more are uncomfortable with the idea of trying to change people's behavior, change lives. They lean more on the idea, well, let's just redistribute benefits. That's what really distinguishes a poor person from a middle-class person. And <clears throat> hopefully other things will fall into place. Conservatives lean harder on the rehabilitation side of the rehabilitation versus redistribution debate. They really want to see people's lives changed. And is there a way to set up systems, set up government programs that include incentives that at least encourage some people to change their lives, even where we're providing them with um, basic assistance?
0: Who's winning?
1: I think that... um, Right now, certainly in homeless services, there's no question that the progressives are winning. We have invested billions throughout the 2010s in housing programs that really had no real expectation that they would change behavior. They were just meant to provide subsidized housing for people who didn't have it. Um, So in terms of the dollar spent, there's no question that the progressives have the the upper
0: hand. On a percentage basis, What's the status of homeless today versus what it was like 50 years ago? Well,
1: we really don't have any reliable statistics. Even now, our statistics on homelessness are um, imperfect. But there is a belief among many learned scholars that homelessness in America really reached nadir in around the 60s. These Skid Row communities had just become very, very small, it was just old guys, there were no young people replenishing the ranks, so to speak. And that's one reason why they thought they would just, that urban planners thought that those communities could just go away. And so people noticed the numbers just really rising. Um, beginning in the 1980s Um, but we don't have an official so it grew certainly between the 60s and the 80s the extent to which it's grown between 1980 and now certainly in new york city which has a good accurate count of its sheltered numbers it's grown extraordinarily since then nationwide it's hard harder to say how much it's grown i would say it's almost certainly grown since 1980 how much hard to say
0: We'll wrap this up in just a second, but a couple of other things. In your conclusion chapter where you make some recommendations, you say consult the lived experience of homeless people less. What does that mean?
1: Well, there there's a popular idea in homeless services circles that we need to, for example, find homeless people, people who've actually yes, individuals who actually had ho- been through homelessness maybe they're still homelessness and for example put them on boards and set up panels where they can talk and I really find this very unsatisfying because there's such a stagey character of it. It's only certain types of people who get recruited to ask to serve on these panels, to to speak to their lived experience. It's not, for example, you know, the schizophrenic guy who's now being held on Rikers Island because he pushed someone to death in front of the subway car. Like, nobody cares about his lived experience. Let's talk about the guy who once who's, who's demanding more housing benefits. And then there's just this eerie – you know, similarity between what these lived experience people say they want and what the homeless advocates themselves say we need done. Families in the mental health world have played a very constructive role in terms of, you know, more hard headed, serious solutions toward the the most difficult cases. And I think that maybe homeless services could learn something from mental health in that respect.
0: Another uh, conclusion you have is ease up on housing first requirements and federal programs. You use housing first a lot in the book. Explain again what that means and why should you ease up on it? Housing
1: first is the dominant approach to homelessness in America, which holds that The best way to deal with homelessness is to connect people as quickly as possible with permanently subsidized housing and address any other problems in their life second after that. The housing comes first. The problem with it is that in practice, those problems never get addressed. Um, you were just connecting people with housing. We're warehousing them. And I think that and, – and also, it turns out that providing anyone who wants it with housing is a very expensive, arduous ordeal. And so the question becomes, what do you do in the meantime before this utopia of per- perfectly affordable housing for everybody arrives? arises. And that, so I think that um, um, rethinking the, the formal requirements baked into federal programs that if you want government support for your homeless services program, you have to conform with housing first. That's something we really need to rethink.
0: We talked earlier, and we're going to uh, end this, but we talked earlier about your bachelor's degree from St. John's College, which is great books, and your PhD in political philosophy. So before I let you go, who's your favorite philosopher? Uh,
1: my favorite philosopher would be Plato, probably. I mean, the Plato is, will always be the best philosopher for young people, um, because he talks about, you know, he's poetic, he writes dialogues, dramatic these plays, and he writes, writes about eros. And, um, you know, I'll always just keep coming back to them. Other philosophers, reading them, it's more like eating your vegetables. With Plato, it never seems as so much like you're eating your vegetables.
0: The name of the book is Homelessness in America, subtitled The History and Tragedy of the an Intractable Social Problem. Stephen Ide has been our guest. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.